Welcome, friends, to Breakfast in the Ruins, a Michael Moorcock-flavoured podcast. This show marks our sixth dive into the world of RPGs and Moorcock. In previous discussions, we've talked at length about the Stormbringer role-playing game and our experiences of it with a variety of guests, including ways of improving or hacking it to bring it more in line with our tastes and expectations, such as Ralph's excellent Stormhack system and Ted's extensive rules mods for Stormbringer. We've also talked about Moorcocky and gaming in a sandbox with Dave and Clarky, and how making shit up on the fly and throwing it away is a truly Moorcockian approach. But there's lots more to explore in this arena. Whilst we've been thinking about this latest show, and my intentions of recharging my game's mastering mojo have been gestating in the dark, other gaming options continue to emerge. Friend of the show, Jay Risa, pointed me towards Lobo Blanco 2nd Edition by Patrizio Gonzalez, a fully realised RPG set in the world of Elric and now available in an English translation. I'll link to the itch.io page in the show notes. And, after years of sulking that it was only ever available in France, in French, Le Department's Mornblade now has an English language quick start edition. A fairly beefy one too at 58 pages, so yet more to explore. But that's for further down the Moonbeam Roads. And we touched on the Black Sword Hack Ultimate Chaos Edition last time around with Gore and Gligovich. More on that to come. But in this show, experienced Stormbringer GMs Dave and Steve select a couple of suitable libations and drop by to talk about their experiences of bringing Moorcock to the gaming table, and the various developments of the Stormbringer and Elric lines rooted in the Chaosium RuneQuest framework. I even did a bad PowerPoint slide to accompany the discussion. Nerdtastic, although a true nerd would probably do a much better job to be fair. So, assemble some vittles, sit back, fondle your dice, and join us as we chew the fat about bringing the multiverse to life at the gaming table. We are back in Derry and Tom's, and we have a couple of first-time Derry and Tom's visitors. First, we have, and the, but I should point out, both friends of the show have been long-time communicators and supporters of the show, so it's lovely to have them both on board, but they're also both keen gamers. So first of all, we've got Dave. Hi, Dave. Hey, hey everyone. Whereabouts are you? I'm in Zurich, Switzerland, um, from Fife, Scotland, originally, but been over here for 14 years or so. Cool. And we've got Steve. Hello there. Hi, yes. Thanks for having me on. Oh, absolute pleasure. And of course, why are we here? Well, we've been talking for quite some time about gaming, about things like Stormbringer, about Moorcocking gaming, and you both run Moorcock campaigns, or have run, or are currently running, extensive Moorcock campaigns using Stormbringer or other, AN other system, and we'll get on to Stormbringer and systems and things like that in a while, because I've got something to share, which is a probably a terrible use of a Sunday afternoon when I could be doing something constructive, like putting something in the oven for Phil for tea, but I'll show you what I've been up to in the, the last half hour shortly. But, first things first, as is traditional, I think uh, we're going to have a small slate of hopefully refreshing brews to accompany us on this little jaunt. So, Dave, what have you got lined up? Well, I'm glad you said that because I'm actually parched and dying to open this. <laughs> I have a Quo Fresh, which is a, a Swiss beer, uh, Alpine water, yada yada, super mm. pure. Um, it's basically a lager. All the beer here is lager, which is a bit boring. Yeah. Um, 
Well, when you say get... Alpine Pure, that just makes me think straight away of Sam Smith's Alpine Lager. Which I don't know was, that one. Yeah, in, in, in Yorkshire and various parts of, of the UK, there are Samuel Smith's pubs, which are in... interesting boozers in that they make all of their own beer. They don't have... Even their own spirits carry their own labels. Yep. And they're quirky places um, but okay. when i was a teenager alpine lager was the go-to cheap lager in okay. a sam smith's pub and the very weird places and i can see steve's nodding his head they're so weird that they actually bar things like ipads and phones and tell you off if you go on your phone <laughs> yep <laughs> you... yeah we, we, we've got one in newport um the Merringer. Yeah. It's been it, it was our sort of regular uh, haunt for a long, long time, and yeah. I think the beer you're referring to, we used to call it "Man in a Box" because it had a little alpine that's guy right. with his little hat and his pipe. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. That's it. And you go in the pub and you just say, "Pint of Man in a Box, please." It, it was over there were were first, and and you know all the bar staff knew. So it was, uh, but but yeah, um, Sam Smiths, they they did away with their um, jukebox uh, at a point mm. about sort of fifteen years ago, and we all said we're never going in there. Of course, that didn't happen. We just carried on going in there. Out of habit yeah i can't actually resist a sam smith's pub and it's funny good. anecdote when the pubs are reopened after lockdown my mate yaki was in one of them and they had a yellow tape around the bar that you weren't supposed to cross and there was a lot of old timers propping up the bar completely ignoring the orange tape but when yaki got his phone out he got told off <laughs> Shocking behaviour. Yeah, amazing. What have you got, Steve? Well, so uh, you know, I'm not much for for a sort of a wacky beer drinking type, and I know you guys on this show. I, I sent you a message earlier on, sort of it's slightly, <laughs> sort of a little, little bit of a, a friendly jab at it. But um, so what I thought I'd do, I'd, I'd I'd keep it Welsh. So I've gone for a few Welsh options. So I've got a Welsh cider, Black Dragon. Um, I'm not going to try and pronounce the Welsh pronunciation at the bottom because being from South Wales, we're not <laughs> exactly great with the language. Um, I've also got um, Double Dragon, Feeling Foul. I think it's Feeling Foul, but we call it Feeling Foul. And I've got, this is uh, Lighthouse Gower Brewery, Lighthouse Lager. Um, and, and that looked particularly cheap and nasty. But hey, you know, when in Rome. I had a double dragon when we were in Barmouth, and I brought some back. I can't remember what it was called, but it was a red ale, and it was absolutely fantastic. Yes, yeah. may well be this one. Yeah. Some very possible, meals, isn't there? there? Isn't Gower your quality place? Isn't it? I mean, this is Appenzell, you know, which is like you know mountains, rural. Appenzell labels usually a badge of sort of quality. You know, I thought Gower was Gower Peninsula was all natural parking and really nice no? oh it's a beautiful area uh, i'm just more i mean you know i know you shouldn't judge a book by its cover or a lager by its label but this looks particularly uh, <laughs> um yeah it, it probably expensive but yeah not doesn't look the greatest of quality mm. well I, i'm gonna roll a d6 on my wandering beer table because i think it's time it returned but i've got a selection i've got some welsh beer I've got some Scottish beer. I couldn't get any uh, Swiss beer, so we'll just have to go with that. And I've got a couple of wild cards, one of which I'm hoping to avoid. But I'm going to roll, and I've rolled a, a number three. Ah, oh, fuck, it's the wild card. So I'm starting off with Wild Child Joyous Frivolity Cranberry Porter, which even though we've had a moratorium on dark beers, this is the last one I had in the house. So Ooh. I put it in there. I should have put it at number one, really, as Snake Eyes, but um, I put it in at number three. So I'm going in with that. So while I crack this one open and give it a paw, let's just think, we've been discussing Stormbringer, the role-playing game, on and off. 
in some of these role-playing game episodes on the podcast. And it does loom largest over all of the Moorcock RPGs, because, of course, it was the first licensed RPG. But you've both been running Stormbringer recently, so we'll start with you, Dave, just because you're on the left of my screen. Yep. What What is the draw of Chaosium Stormbringer, and is it is it the big player in the room when it comes to Moorcock gaming? In short, yes. I mean, I think the trouble is, without casting aspersions, we're all older, older chaps. Yeah, I mean, we're all you know, we're probably the, early, the, the early start, early days of the hobby. You know, and there was a split. Yeah, certainly where I when I grew up, you either played D and D or you played Runequest. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think those that left D and D never went back because pages of lookup tables and. You know, all the arcanery around it were too much. Whereas, you know, any BRP game, whether it was, you know, it's not like now when you can get all the books in the shops. Generally, you wrote your own. It was all homebrew. All you had was a rule book, you know, and maybe some Murcock books at the library. I mean, that was, I think, what most of us ran when we started. So Sturmbringer filled that perfectly. And then once you knew BRP, you could adapt it to anything. Mm. So... So when I came out of the deep freeze, as we call it, you know, I don't know how many years ago now, um, let's say five, the initial appeal for me was to return to what I knew, which was Stormbringer. So before I knew it, I was collecting, and I, you know, I think I've now got a copy of everything from the Stormbringer line, most of the um, Mongoose stuff as well. But, you know, I, I think in terms of the game, it is Stormbringer. Yeah, I mean, I, I, mean, I think certainly holds a special place for me. Mm. Now, did you discover Stormbringer the game before the books, or vice versa? Um, oh, good question. Because we, we were reading Moorcock quite early, um, maybe about the same time, really. Mm. Um, you know, a, a friend of mine, um, he introduced me to the Stormbringer game and the book, and Moorcock, so who lived along from me in the, uh, the cobord scheme uh, where, where I grew up. Um so yeah, both. I mean, concurrent probably. Um, mm. You know, the, um, I think I was reading Murcock about eleven, probably playing Stormringer about the same, same sort of time. Mm. Um, How about you, Steve? You're you're currently running. Uh, I think you're into season two of your Stormbringer campaign, aren't you? So, yep. what's your history with with Stormbringer and gaming, and why is for you is Stormbringer the big one? For me, um, uh, we we started. Um, well, as a, f- a friend of mine, whose mother um, uh, was was a lovely woman, um, but she she had sort of quite different um, sort of views on the world. Um, and one day we were all out, you know, ten years old, out in the streets. We come back and she's bought tunnels and trolls for him. So it was like, what <laughs> nice. you know, what, what the hell's this? Like, so you mm. know, he, he read through it, ran us um, uh, the, the the first introductory scenario, cave of the bear, I want to say can't remember that was it's a long time ago um and we loved it absolutely loved it so of course that led into dnd um and 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 from playing those games we started reading all the different books so we started getting into fantasy so zelazny the amber books in particular um you know haven't forgotten on that one i hope you're you know getting around to that at some point but that that's another story yep Brilliant. Um, uh, 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 Dragonlance books, um, uh, you know, um, well, I still got most of them, uh, you know, David Gemmell and all, all those mm. things. And, and one of the books was Moorcock, um, you know, in particular Elric. 
and and it just it just blew me away you know the whole idea of the multiverse the whole the brutality of the setting how dark it was it just literally is it was almost as if somebody said right let's see if we can take all of steve's boxes and it, and it absolutely did <laughs> so of course we were role players already and, and and it didn't take much before somebody said did you know that there's a role-playing game of the books that you you love so much mm. and that was it you know it was a marriage made in heaven straight away mm. the um the 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 the, the I've still got my, my original copy still falling apart. Of that, you know, still bring a third <laughs> yeah. edition, is it? I think. That's right. Oh, yeah. yeah, Games Workshop. Yeah, and yeah. I, you know, it's a thing of beauty. There's some lovely um, sort of pictures in there that's that that, that now come out, uh, you know, unintentionally. Um, uh, and and it's you know, it, it was just it was a simple system. It worked for me, and and I've just kept up with the different iterations because I think. With the exception of mongoose, and I know you want to talk about that in a moment, I I I, I kind of skirted that. It was mm. it was a you know bad taste in the mouth third edition D and D I didn't like, and I just mm. thought no no no. I even bought the Strontium Dog role playing game, and then realised that it was you know mongoose, and it was like no okay, so that's just on the shelf, never used. Yeah. Long story short, loved the books first. It was just you know no brainer to run the game, and, and and BRP in particular, it's just you know for example. The last campaign, not this one, and I'll say for why in a minute. Uh, I, I, I don't think I opened the rule book um, maybe twelve times throughout yeah. three seasons, so that's about thirty-six, um, you know, sessions. Yeah. Uh, you know, so it, because I just know the system off by heart, and if I don't know it, it'll be a multiple of a stat on a on a percentile. It's just. It's just too too simple, you know. Major wounds tables, obviously, are, are, yeah. are used a bit more often, but it's just too simple. Um, mm. and, and and it allows me, and and I assume other people, to be able to concentrate their energy into a story that's you know worthwhile, and not have to worry about the sort of intricacies of rules and the tables and the links. It's that side of role playing has never appealed to me. So, I, I'm not saying you don't need that. You absolutely need that. But it needs to be a function uh, to serve the story, not a you know that the, the weighting of it needs to be right, and 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 it needs to be much much lower than the story, in my opinion. Which is why I've I've stuck with it all the way through. The reason why I say I've looked at it more in this campaign is because the Alric uh, rules, although I like them a lot. There's a lot more to do with seafaring because my my group are based on a ship. It's all mm. so I use those rules quite a lot, and I have to check up on things. Um, and the magic system is a bit more um, sort of expanded. And, and and although it's not very Morcock, if I'm honest, I still like it because it adds it, it gives us the sorcerer characters a bit more um, to do. And and so so yeah, that that's that that's my long winded answer. Mm. When when I rake at the back of my hind brain to try and remember how I came across all of this was I was reading Mocock a long time before I realized there was a Stormbringer role-playing game. I think my first experience was like most people with Dungeons and Dragons. It was AD&D. I think I was 11 years old. I was into fighting fantasy books. Someone said, come and play Dungeons and Dragons. So that's how I got into role-playing games. Then fast forward five or six years, I'm at college. I'm 16 or 17 and I hear some kids behind me talking about Dungeons and Dragons, and I peek my head over the partition and talk to them. And uh, later that evening, I'm round their house with my players' handbook and Dungeon Master's Guide, running a game for them. Brilliant. Start running games for these for these guys. Some of them are still friends to this day. And one of them, a couple of weeks later, turns up with a copy of Stormbringer Third Edition by Games Workshop. Already the spine is cracked, and he's, <laughs> and he's only had it a couple of weeks. And he also had that corgi 
Tunnels and Trolls paperback as well. That's and I didn't didn't know Tunnels and Trolls existed either. So that's when I discovered that there was actually a, a role playing game of Michael Moorcock. Because of course, back in those days, if they didn't have it in your local gaming store, it might as well not have existed. And my local gaming store seemed to be all Dungeons and Dragons. I think there was RuneQuest box sets and things like Phoenix Command supplements which were just too much to cope with but i think from for the benefit of people who listen to this podcast and when we're talking about brp and mongoose and things like that what i've scooby-doo what we're talking about so i'm going to enter into work mode and i'm very quickly going to share my screen and show you (laughs) the ridiculous task that i assigned myself this afternoon and as i'm thinking about it i've already forgotten one but i'm going to throw this up on screen and this is the the flow chart for Chaosium, uh, the lineage of Stormbringer and how it all came about. So, back in the day, in the mists of time, there was the first edition Rune Quest. And some of these arrows are probably in the wrong places. Chaosium created a role-playing game called Rune Quest, which was loosely based on Greek myth and is a very popular role-playing game. It's a very, very detailed background that people are really, really into. But for these purposes, the interesting thing about RuneQuest was it was one of the earliest iterations of what became to be known as Chaosium's basic role-playing system. So when we refer to BRP, we're talking about the basic role-playing system, which also was the fundamental basis of Ringworld, ElfQuest, and various other games that emerged over the years. I think Thieves World might have used it anyway. So Chaosium, the big oh, Call of Cthulhu, of course. Yes, How can I forget that? So Chaosium are really the big competitor, I suppose, in many ways to Dungeons & Dragons, along with Traveller, which we won't talk about, it's the science fiction game. But Stormbringer First Edition emerges from the RuneQuest rules. Ken St. Andrew and Steve Perrin create Stormbringer. Beautiful box set, that great Frank Brunner out on the cover. A very, very modified version of the RuneQuest rules. We get Stormbringer Second Edition. We get the Hawkmoon box set as well that comes out of that line, which was originally badged to be part of an Eternal Champion role-playing game line. But it never really happened. We never got the originally intended Chaosium line. So we end up with this parallel track of RuneQuest developing through various editions and Stormbringer developing through various editions. And there's a similarity in that both lines ended up with a UK-published Games Workshop edition, which fell to bits because their binding was so terrible. And the Call of Cthulhu 3rd edition was published by Games Workshop and fell to bits because the spine glue was terrible. So we get Stormbringer 3rd edition. Then we move on and we get Elric exclamation mark. For whatever reason, they remove the Stormbringer branding and we get Elric exclamation mark, which brings it a little bit more in line with the RuneQuest rules, gets rid of a lot of the gonzo elements, which is in some ways a shame. I don't mind the Elric system, but it does that wild swinginess of the Stormbringer system. It smooths over a little bit. Then we get Corum by Darkseid. Not a Chaosium uh, publication, a licensed Corum role-playing game, which be based upon those same Elric rules, which I think is probably one of the finest um, Mococ-based publications that have ever been produced in role-playing game form. And then we get Stormbringer 5th, which is really a revised version of Elric, with the font size blown up, so it can be twice as thick a book, but it does have a wonderful cover. And then the Stormbringer, the classic Stormbringer line, grinds to a halt, except... Except, years later, 
with all of the Mococcian file numbers filed off, it ends up being republished, essentially, as a game called Magic World. And if you can still get a copy of Magic World, it's pretty decent. But what happens at that point? Well, the RuneQuest license is granted to a British company called Mongoose, and we get the first iteration of RuneQuest by Mongoose. Now, you'll see I've coloured the boxes grey, for Mongoose Grayscale, not because I lack imagination, but I always associate Mongoose rules with grey. It's horrible to read, isn't it's it? I mean, it's terrible with those books, you know? Yeah. But interestingly, not only is it grayscale and terrible to read, but the Hawkmoon hardcover that comes out bears a remarkable similarity to the GW Stormbringer 3rd edition in that it falls to pieces if you look at it. So we get the Eric of Melanibana rules, we get the Hawkmoon rules. Then, because Mongoose RuneQuest 1 is such a basket case and so broken in terms of system, we get revised Mongoose RuneQuest 2, which brings quite a lot of nice developments. Things like um, the combat manoeuvre stuff is actually quite nice in Mongoose RuneQuest 2. The system is tidied up. We then get the Elric of Melnibane, second edition through Mongoose, which, again, is built upon those rules. We don't get a second edition of Hawkmoon. But then... Mongoose lose the license to RuneQuest, so we get this mad process of about three or four years where Mongoose RuneQuest 2 is rebadged as Legend. And then the authors of Mongoose RuneQuest 2 and Legend, Pete Whitaker and Lawrence Nash, take that system with them, create the design mechanism, they get the license to RuneQuest, it becomes RuneQuest 6, which is absolutely baffling, it's incredibly difficult to keep track of, but then they lose the license to RuneQuest and they rebadge it as Mithras. And Mithras is currently, out of all the things we've just discussed, is the only one actually still in print. And just out of interest, they also do a supplement for Luther Arkwright, and they do Lioness. And both of those are currently in print, Lioness based on Jack Vance. Meanwhile, we have a couple of French games by Le Departement, Mornblade and Hawkmoon, which use a completely different system called Choose Your Dice, which I haven't really looked into too deeply. But the one I've forgotten to put on this chart is Dragon Lords of Melnibane. The D20 one. The D20 one. Because as part of the D20 boom, Mongoose decide they've got the license, so they do a D20 version of Elric of Melnibane. And they call it Dragon Lords of Melnibane. And it's literally a lift and shift, isn't it? Yeah, it you is. Know, they, they divide it by five. Mm, yeah. So that is uh, what I wasted half an hour on this afternoon, and still forgot to put Dragonlords of Melnibane on. But for listeners, this is essentially what we're talking about when we talk about this throughput, this this line of Mococ role-playing games that are officially licensed. Now, of course, there are probably dozens of role-playing games out there that claim Mococ as a reference point in their design. One of them, of course, is Black Hack Ultimate... Sorry, Black Sword Hack which will just have the second edition of release through Kickstarter, the Ultimate Chaos Edition, which is very, very heavily Mococ influenced and wears its badge entirely on its sleeve. But yeah, so we've gone through this entire process. And interestingly, again, Mococ views a lot of this very, very dimly. He didn't think that Chaosium treated him particularly well, which is why he withdrew the license from them. No idea what he thought of the Mongoose publications, but there we are. Dave... Have you purely just used Stormbringer, or have you tamp- no. have you dabbled in any of the others? I, I've gone right through all of those. So 
mean, so when I came out the deep freeze, I got a hold of Sturmbringer box set, which I think is the second edition one, the Brunner artwork. In my opinion, that's ultimate Sturmbringer edition. Mm. Um, but the challenge I had was running games here in, in Switzerland. There were D&D crowds, really not many of them even knew about Moorcock. And it was a hard sell. Um, so I moved it to Elric. Elric was a bit more user-friendly, mm. if you like, but I felt Elric was too dumbed down. The magic was um, a bit more like RuneQuest battle magic. Everyone had it, and I just thought it took the edge off. Mm. So I wasn't really happy with Elric. Um, I got a hold of Corum. Love Corum. I think that's the best rules for a Moorcockian game that there are. I mean, if I, you know, I then got through virtual grog me and um, the Twitter and the online community, I moved my gaming online. And, and that was really when it shifted up a gear. Um, and I got into Mithras. Mm. Well, I started with Mongoose Runequest 1 because there was a character sheet on Roll20. Um, went off that quite quickly onto Runequest 2 on top of Mithras. And that runs really nicely. And then I had some problems with my eye and I've recently came, you know, I had to stop jamming for a while. So coming back and, you know, taking time out and thinking about all this, I'm now moving towards Savage Worlds and Swedebringer. Because from my point of view, the challenge on all of these is to sell to a modern crowd and to be supported on a, a virtual tabletop. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Stormbringer's a hard sell because ultimately you're crap. Yeah, I mean, I think my favourite character in Sturmringer was a beggar, you know. and But not a lot of people want to go that route, you know, and not a lot of people get it. Um, and I always struggled. I mean, for me, the benchmark that I would use to, how would I run this, would be the Mordaga's Shield, um, which I've got a one-shot for, you know. And if you think about how epic that story is, where they fight the trees, the, the leaves that drain your blood... The, the giant at the end that they end up killing and he ends up killing him. Sorry about the spoilers. He ends up killing his <laughs> friend. How would you run that in Sturmbringer? Yeah. The party would die at the first tree. You know, mm-hmm. so, so that's part of the appeal for Savage Worlds because, you know, the, with the whole raises and bennies and it, it's just bonkers, you know. And, and it, to me and feel, it's a, a lot more like the early days of running Sturmbringer. It's a lot more unpredictable, a lot wilder. Mm-hmm. Um so that's the direction I'm going. But I've run all of these, you know. Um, trying to, what I tried to do was introduce people through, I'd pick out the weirder or the more Moorcockian scenarios like the Infinite Cathedral um, from the Sturmbringer, um, or the book is Perils of the Young Kingdoms, maybe. But, you know, it's a hard sell, you know, and trying to motivate a Moorcockian story for a a modern crowd in a virtual environment, you know, there's there's quite a lot of constraints there about system, rules, mm. flavour. So that was the path that I took. Yeah. yeah. So, Steve, you, you've been running Stormbreaker. Are the players all familiar with Moorcock, or is this something that you've had to sell turn-wise? Um, so I've been running it since third edition, so, you know, around about 35 years much like Dave, I did go through a deep freeze phase. Um, uh, you know, I think like everybody, life life happens, and suddenly it's like, yep. well, I, you know, I can't stay up till 
five in the morning playing overnight as over my friends. Oh, yeah, it's rubbish, isn't it? Oh, it's horrendous. I, I hate that we can't do that anymore. How dare they demand mm. that I earn my money? Um, <laughs> but yeah, so 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 I've, I've run it for so long, um, and 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 you know, thankfully, I got a reputation for it. So in our sort of gaming um, uh, community in in Newport um, and and slightly wider to Cardiff, uh, I, you know, I, I was lucky enough to be in a position where people would be asking me to play. Now, it's not me trying to blow my own trumpet here. That's purely me saying that. I, the hard sell element wasn't needed, um, mm. uh, and, and I think it's not probably not down, not definitely not down to the content. I think it's just the style of the way I run is very much sort of um, you know action packed. It's, it's why I, you know, I, I, I kind of tilted towards this sort of even referring to it as seasons and episodes because I, I kind of felt that I, 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 I was more comfortable in in a realm where I was. You know, structuring the the campaign in that way, so that mm. so that they you know beginning, middle, end, and uh, you know sort of a, a, a plot arc, sort of uh, you know Straczynski, um, uh, Babylon Five esque type of bigger idea for the long run, peppering things throughout. Anyway, I digress. Um, so so I, I I was lucky enough in that respect that I you know at, at one point I think I ran three groups: one law, one balance, one chaos six in each 18 players and i was running um in the same universe and the same timeline and each of these groups would affect things that would happen to the other group in different parts of the young kingdoms and and, and to be honest that was born slightly out of me trying to push myself mm. but also out of the fact that i was having people saying to me you know what, what's what's wrong with me why won't you run for me you know and so so i had to cater for and, and again not blow my own trumpet i'm not that guy it, i was just lucky enough but I'd, I'd reached the point where it's saturated and i would i just said look i can't run it anymore i've, I've done all the stuff in the books I've, I've i've brought quorum books into it i've brought the hawk moon stuff into it i've done everything i wanted to do and now i'm just feeling like i'm you know retreading water mm. and i went through that deep freeze and somebody one of my old players you know basically messaged me separately and said oh if you if you you know if ever feel like it I'd, I'd be up for playing and, and since then i've started to bring other people in so what what i've done is i wrote um a, a couple of pages which basically laid out what you know in my mind a Stormbringer or Moorcock-esque game is. So, you know, dark themes, you know, gory. It's it's called the Young Kingdoms because people don't get old. Mm. You know, it, death is quick and easy and, and nothing is safe. You know, D&D, a sword hits you. You can take that all day if you're a fighter of a certain level. Whereas in this system, you know, a sword the size of a, a sideboard hits you you're probably not getting up and and, and mm. getting that sort of message across in a few bits of paper and also the the the, the difference between the alignments because people sort of go instantly chaos is evil no actually that's not strictly true they're just random they 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 they're very okay they're selfish and whatnot but mm. they're not necessarily evil whereas law is good is also not right i mean my current campaign law are without doubt the bad guys they're imposing order on the young kingdoms and and as it you know because i tried to do something a bit different i wanted it to be you know that that sort of juxtaposition whereas normally chaos are the ones being you know uh, 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 taken to court whereas now i wanted that to be the you know the, the roles reversed where chaos are actually scrambling trying to get together some sort of rebellion mm. so yeah it, it, to answer your question again apologies for the long-winded answer but in the past, it wasn't a problem. In the current times, I've got about half and half. And for those that don't, I've got this little write-up that I give them at the start and say, look, this is uh, you know, a flavor for what you're going to get in, in the world of Moorcock. 
you're entirely homebrewed, Steve. Yeah, you're writing all of this. You're not. These aren't out of source books or this is all coming from from you, correct? Hundred percent. Yeah. So so for many years now, I've I've written my own stuff. Um, uh, you know that 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 one I mentioned about the three parties and the uh, you know the eighteen players, all, all mine. You know the, the end fight was all the survivors of those groups at the end of time. So I take I take cues from the books. But I, I I write my own sort of journey to get there, and 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 to coin a phrase I've heard Andy say a couple of times, um, you know, all my characters, all my players, um, they're all um, shit kickers. I think uh, pardon my <laughs> French was that was the the, the 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 beautiful term that Andy used, yeah. and 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 that's something I've used since when talking to my players. You know, don't misunderstand me. You'll be doing heroic things. But you'll probably die doing them because you're a shit kicker. You know, mm-hmm. don't ever forget that, they, that you're just, you know, in the grand scheme of things, you're probably being used by the gods. You're certainly not Elric and you're not an eternal champion. Get that idea out of your mind now. You're probably going to die. We've had two de- character deaths the last two sessions as it goes. So it, it happens. Yeah. But shit kickers has stuck. So thanks for that, Andy. Well, it's just a reflection of my favorite style of game and it's funny thinking about role-playing games and and my opinion on role-playing games and things like that i always find it problematic in my mind just when it comes to verisimilitude that if you're playing a game and you look at the system and the likelihood is that the average character will have a certain capacity to take damage whether we call it hit points or whatever we're going to call it and then a firearm has a certain capacity to cause damage and from the very, very off, a firearm cannot kill a character unless they take several hits. That, to me, instantly destroys my opinion of a game because I want the players to face risk. I think drama needs risk. Indeed. I think drama needs the risk of death. And I'm not knocking anybody at all who wants to play D&D up to 20th level or whatever. But I always found, when I played D&D back in the day, we never ever got to epic level because it it got boring at that yep. point. It got boring. The point where if things become, uh, if the atmosphere becomes febrile and violent, then you enter into a thirty-five minute dice rolling session, and that just turns me off completely. As a GM, funnily enough, I understand why that's appealing. Because when it comes to preparing for a game, if you know that a four-hour session, three hours of it will be two fights and shitloads of dice rolling, that actually makes it extraordinarily easily easy to GM a long session for players when you know straight away that if you put three fights in... I've, I've played you know dungeon crawls where you get through three rooms in three hours because the fight takes are fucking long. That, to me, is just... Not, I understand why people like that stuff. For me, it just becomes tactical simulation, not realistic simulation, but it, it, it it's not for me. It bores me. Okay. I would rather have a group of players who do everything they possibly can to avoid getting into a fight because they don't want their characters to come a cropper. That's what I like. Yep. So years and years and years ago, I think the most successful and enjoyable game I've ever run, I ran a game of Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay for a bunch of people who played Warhammer Fantasy Battle primarily. And all of their characters were, you know, in the battle, they were all heroic. You know, I've never played Warhammer Fantasy Battle, so I don't really know how it works. So they came to play my game, and where they've been playing war games where certain beasts, chaos beasts, were dispatched left, right, and centre by these heroic figures. We had this game where they were, I think one of them was uh, 
um, basically scrubbed the steps at the local temple. He was a novice. One of them was a charcoal burner or something stupid like that. And one of them was a grave digger. And another one was an agitator. And they were all so useless. <laughs> because Warhammer Fantasy Roleplayer, if you get in a fight with beginning characters, it's a recipe for disaster. And the game was simply, they had to go and get some sausages from the local <laughs> from, from a nearby village so they could bring it back for Sigmar Fest at the at the local temple. But there were some complications along the way that included bandits, um, an injured chaos beast man in the forest causing havoc. Just silly silly little things. And there was uh, a a local um village which was being tainted by chaos. Right, okay, so easy peasy. They that's the task. They're the local complications. Players what we're going to do. And it was absolutely fantastic because it got to a point where some bandits tried to mug them in the woods and get the sausages off them, and they used social skills to avoid getting into a fight with them, agreed that half of the sausages the bandits could take in return for the agitator getting some kind of agreement with them that they would get involved in local politics and support him when it came to an argument in a town square or something. And this took four hours... It was absolutely brilliant. They all loved it, and that to me is really enjoyable gaming. This like epic level combat and epic level stuff. It's it's all right. It's all right, but I I just prefer I like shit kickers in games, and I like to play shit kickers. So Dave, your point about playing a beggar at recent Mocock Tolkien weekend, uh, we played a game in the afternoon, which was Dungeon Crawl Classics was the system, but I was I was a Nodsakarian beggar with a hook for a hand, and I had a great time. Because okay. all I all I could do was sneak and pick people's pockets. I couldn't do anything else, and I loved it. Just but, right up my street. But that description of the combat—I mean, I mean, I hadn't thought about it before because really all I knew was BRP, and mm. you know, and one of my gamer, one of my players, we were doing the what's it called, Pride of Pyre or something—the one with mm. the battle barge ghost ship, yeah, from one of the source books—and we had this epic combat and. Afterwards, he said to me, you, you know, Dave, I like the game, but combat takes too long. Hit, parry, hit, parry, hit. You're basically waiting for someone to miss a parry, and then you might total them, you know. And, and I hadn't thought about it before, but, I mean, Mithras, I think, had a real problem with that. It was actually quite hard to kill people, because I had another player say to me, you know, we've played Rogue Mistress almost right through the epic campaign, which is superb. He said, no one's died. Mm. It doesn't feel like there's a risk of death in, in this, you know. I took all that on board. So the long combats and the, the, the risk of death, and part of it was me as a GM, it took so long, I felt, to roll up a character for Elric of Melnabone 2 on Mithras. Mm. Um, I was reluctant to kill people. <laughs> and combat, combats took forever. And that, that was another factor that drove me towards Savage Worlds, which in combat feel is a lot more like early Stormbringer. You could be one shot, bang, gone, mm. dead. You know, the guy rolls a 10 on his longsword. You roll a one minus one on your uh, wooden uh, weeping waist armor. So you've got no armor. Boom, major wounds, your legs off or, or whatever, you know. Mm. To me, Savage Worlds is a lot more of that feel. It's, it's faster. You're not into this hit, parry, hit, parry cycle. You know, it's it's pretty much resolved there and then. You know, and that that was where I went that way. I think in old money they call that whiffy, don't they? 
Okay. Where, where combat gets whiffy, where it's just like whiff you miss, whiff you miss, plonk you yeah. parry, whiff you miss, and it just goes on and on and on. Yeah. Um, I, if you if you're listening, Clark, I apologise, but GURPS is the worst yeah. um, iteration of that I've ever come across. I think, and Clark, you won't mind me saying, but um, an hour and ten minutes to run something that in real time probably lasted two um, was just was just too much for me. Once it gets simulationist, it, it all gets a little bit a little bit much for me but you know th- there's lots and lots of super simple systems out there and i do like brp so that's again for people so do who, I, yeah. yeah for people who don't really game or are only aware of dungeons and dragons or something like that what is brp well it's fairly simple everybody has core stats but every everybody also has a skill list which generally not to 100 and you roll two d det- two 10-sided dice to create a number from one between one and 100 and if you roll under your skill you're successful. There have been all sorts of developments of it, like degrees of success and various other bits and pieces over time. And I think 7th edition Call of Cthulhu introduces some new things like automatically passing skill tests if your skill is a certain level. But that's essentially the core of it. I think that's why it's so intuitive and easy. And Steve, you made the point that once you've played BRP a few times, you don't need to pick up a rule book. And it's the case that you know, Call of Cthulhu is a game I always end up going back to over the years for whatever reason. I've always gone back to Call of Cthulhu. One is because if you're playing with a group of players who don't want to understand complex law, everybody can identify with being a gumshoe in the 1930s or a librarian or an antiquarian. Or if you want to play it in the 1980s, whatever, um, everybody can identify with that. So it's an easy system to to facilitate things that casual gamers can get into very, very easily. But simultaneously, even for for want of a better expression, experienced or advanced gamers all tend to slip back to things like Call of Cthulhu as well because it just has that thing built into it where, okay, you might not kill someone with a gunshot in one shot if someone's got a certain amount of hit points, but if they get hit a couple of times you know, it's it's going to be serious consequences. So you can reproduce danger and drama and it's intuitive and anybody can look at the character sheet and say, I've got X chance, roll the dice, they know whether they've succeeded or not. Yep. It's still got that weird thing yes. going on where they duplicated the 3D6 approach to core statistics, but that's just like a... Well, I don't know. That's, that's an old school thing that's just stuck with time, isn't it? Because but- D&D was the thing. So they did the D and D thing. It, it works quite well, though the stats, because uh, the, the sort of multiples um, uh, to to make a percentage chance. Mm. You know, you've got a couple of the stats that sort of go into uh, you know five times for for intelligence, for your education, or idea. I think it is, um, and, and you know, there's a dexterity percentage. And and what I found myself doing through the years was most times if a skill didn't fit because you've got this finite list of skills that it's like if something you're trying to do it's likely in some cases 50 50 sometimes that it's mm. just not going to be covered by any of the skills so rather than try you know look through the rule book or you know pause the game like you might on you know third edition D horror stories that i don't even want to go into a ptsd <laughs> from um you know rules jewels for an hour uh, but but it it, it becomes easier for me then just to say do you know what it makes sense that this is dexterity based give me a three times your dex 
or two times your dex, depending mm. on the sort of situation. And you've got to, you know, you've got to have that sort of ability to be able to make a fair assessment as to what that multiple is. But it's all on the fly, and it's all sort of, you know, it's it's, it's not written in the book to do that. But to me, it just makes sense. And I think the key for me is the because I've always asked for feedback from my players on and regular intervals. I think as comes from a boring career you know in in, a, in 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 civil service but you know i always ask for for for, for feedback um and, and the feedback i had back was that they felt it was fair mm. and i think if you if you've got a situation where you can make a call like that the players think it's a fair call um and and, and it achieves you to be able to move that story along and not take the next 10 minutes arguing about what is and isn't mm. um and and that comes down to players and i will say because i did tell them i would I, I, I have to say the group of players I've got at the moment are excellent, and and mm. and, and they, they 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 dive in. I had a an hour worth of catching up between two party members who have been missing uh, apart from each other for two uh, for for the whole second season, and they just role played throughout the whole thing. Even though they've been sat there listening to everything that's been happening, they went through it in character, no dice mm. rolls, just just chatting. But but yeah, so so I think it, it it lends itself well. And and to go back to that point you made a moment ago about the hit parry hit parry what I tended to do to, to change that up a bit was get them to describe how they're doing that hit, how they're doing that parry, make them use the environment. You know, you describe the environment around them, get them to be a bit creative, give them some, you know, plus 5% for that. Yeah, great idea. Oh, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to kick the sand into his into his face and, or, I'm, you know, I'm going to drop to my knees and attack him. If somebody says to me, I'm going to attack him and makes the role, I'm like, okay, yeah, great. But if they're going to add to that picture that we're all creating between us, and I know that sounds really boxy and apologies, but if they're going to add to that picture by saying, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I'm going to do this little flourish with my sword or I'm going to distract him by sort of, you know, shouting over there or something, I'll give it, I'll reward them for that with a really sort of minor negligible percentage. Mm -hmm. But it's more about making sure that it isn't just roll, hit, roll, parry, roll. And, and, and it, it, it almost makes that, if that does go on for a bit longer, at least there's a bit of colour to it. At least there's a bit of flavour to it. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, with you. Yeah, that, that, that all works. Yep, agreed. There's all sorts of ways, isn't there? Yeah. I don't think it's necessarily modern games that have introduced this, because I'm sure a lot of people have been house-ruling this over the years. I can remember years and years and years ago when I think Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay was probably in its second edition phase. There was, a, I don't know if it was a website or whether it was pre-websites, but there was certainly a zine for Warhammer that had all sorts of additional features that you could implement. Like It was, it was, it was before Advantage and Disadvantage were really being used, but you could flip your dice. So in certain situations, you could flip your dice. The tens would become units, and units would become tens, if you so wish to do that. And there were all sorts of different things, which a lot of which I think ended up getting uh, adopted in Dark Heresy, and also Zweihander, the um, the Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay with the the numbers filed off. Lots and lots of these options, which originated with these like third party approaches to Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, to stop it being so problematic. Because of course there were exploits in Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay. Number one, play a dwarf. Number two, have high toughness. Nobody could ever damage you. So there were all these kind of exploits that people worked in through house rules. And it's just about not sticking to the letter of the rules, and that's what something that you get in D and D. And I know it happened in three point five and three. I never played second, third, three point five, or fourth edition D and D. I played first edition back in the day, and I played fifth edition a little bit. But the whole 
people with their handbooks interpreting rules differently thing is a very, very D&D thing and having debates <laughs> and min-maxes and all that stuff is a very D&D thing, which, you know, well, whatever. If people want to do that stuff, that's absolutely great. Good for them. Yeah, but but I think D&D is the ultimate system for that. I mean, it yeah. seems to attract that kind of player, doesn't it? You know, min-max, I mean, it's almost like they're playing a computer game. I mean, maybe it's yeah. a generation thing, maybe that, you know, that's what they're, the way they're, they're used to thinking. Mm. Um, I mean, I'm in two groups at the moment, you know, uh, um, one with Roy and Debbie doing a lot of RuneQuest, um, quite heavy RP story play more than, I don't think the rules are ever that prominent. We, mm. Doing quite a variety of games with them. In the Saturday group, where we've just finished Mac Masks of Near Lathotep mm. um, after over a year. Um, and, and again, very RP heavy. My last yeah. character was an Aborigine, clever man, almost useless. Mm. You know? <laughs> almost useless, you know, but he had the odds. Bloody, you know, I, I think he took them into the, the, the dream time and got them like a, a hex bonus or something. And he was not noticeable, but, you know, the, not a power character. Most mm. of the characters in that campaign weren't on a power level at all. You know, it was heavy RP, good fun. Um, That's the beauty of Call Cthulhu, isn't it? Yeah, if you, if your character is a 62-year-old antiquarian, yeah. you know, back in the day, everybody wanted to play, oh, can't I be a World War One veteran or something <laughs> and bump up my combat skills? Uh, yeah, but, yeah. No, I, just, just, play, just play a 62-year-old antiquarian who was too old to serve in World War One and get yeah. over it, you know? <laughs> Yeah, that's that's the stuff I like. Right, I'm sorry. I'm just going to take a moment to uh, roll a dice. I've hit three again, so I have to count one, two, three. So I am now going in for my Scottish beer, which is Last Bango in Balak, Mango Milkshake IPA by Lot Lerman Brewery. This is a little special. Mango Milkshake. Mm. Two, two seconds, I'm going to grab one out of the fridge. Well, I tried the Lighthouse Lager, the... the, the... The Gower one, and it wasn't that bad actually. So yeah. you know, I, I must apologise to the brewers for that. Yeah. So I think we'll do a bit of feeling foul. Yeah. Let's see how this one shapes up. I've been quite impressed with some of the cheap little beers. To be honest, they've been all right. That may be a challenge. Yeah, it's all right. It's one of these modern IPAs that just tastes like they've mixed it with some juice, <laughs> which I think is probably exactly what they've done. I think there is a certain amount of racketeering when it comes to craft beers, where they just get the buy up a, a bulk load of dry hopped IPA and mix it with whatever they can think of, Random. can it up, put a pretty label on it. Yeah. But it'll do. It's all right. It's all right for a Sunday afternoon. I like the pun for the Optimist, though. I just want to say that quickly. Good, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I like that. It's a nice shop, the Optimist. I like it. He's uh, he, he's. So anybody listening, if you're in Leeds, Geisley, the Optimist, I'm not sponsored by them, honestly. But I have had some nice beer from there. That's where I came across the Aunt Bessie's roast beef and Yorkshire pudding brown ale. And I think they also had jam roly-poly and custard pale ale, which literally just tasted like it had jam and sugar in a pale ale. <laughs> Who was it? I enjoyed it, but too sweet. Not Certainly not a session beer. And the, the brown ale, the Yorkshire pudding and roast beef brown ale just tasted like they'd maybe stirred a bit of Bovril or Oxo powder into a, <laughs> into a brown ale, you know, which is no, fine no, if, no. You like, if you like gravy and brown ale, maybe not at the same time. Not mm. in the same glass anyway. Yeah. Loz texted me a while ago and said his brother-in-law was in a, a place in Stockport and he'd had a smoked porter that tasted like bacon sandwiches in a, in a, in a beer, which no. I'm not sure about that. 
I mean, I love bacon sandwiches and I do like uh, a porter, but I'm not sure about the combination. I would definitely no. try it. Though. I would I've definitely had a German try beer, it. like a beer festival, like a smoked German beer. Mm. You couldn't drink more than two or three of them. The worst beer we have drunk on this podcast was a Russian Imperial smoked porter. It was dreadful. It was one of the worst things I've ever drunk in my life, and half of it went down the sink, and it was nine quid a bottle. Nine quid a bottle. Nine quid a bottle. You know, we we do tend, Loz and I tend to try and challenge each other. It doesn't always work out. Well, that's the point of a challenge, isn't it? It is. You've got to take the rough with the smooth. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The only other one we've we've ever poured away was an oyster stout. Oh, my word. Yeah. I've no idea if it had oysters in it, but it tasted like it did. It was fucking horrible. So, yeah, that one went down the sink. That was many years ago. And funnily enough, I was going to mention this, we were playing another D100-based system at the time, which I really like. Uh, I don't know if you've ever come across Unknown Armies. No. I've heard of it, never played it. It's about the idea that there's an occult underground. And life is normal on the surface, but there's this occult underground where people are, you know, up to no good, or it's it's a little bit gonzo, a little bit weird, but very good. And I, I ran a game set in the early 80s, this is probably going back 10 years, set in the early 80s in a town ostensibly on the fringes between North Yorkshire and Cumbria that doesn't really exist. Called it Ramsey after Ramsey Campbell. And I used the Unknown Army system, and as is my preference, all the characters were people in the late teens or early 20s on the Dole living on a council estate called the Copper Hill Estate. So one of them was a barman in a pub called the June Whitfield. Um, one of them was on the Dole. One of them was a window cleaner. Um, one of them ran a record stall at the local market and was called Electric Russell, but nobody knew his real name. And uh, who else was there? Oh, yeah, and one of them um, ran a video shop called Veni VD Video, and it was there with the characters. And it was great. But the, the Unknown Army system is really interesting because it's D100-based, so it's BRP-ish. But there's no set skill list. You kind of come up with your skills as you generate your character. And when it comes to things like fights, they're incredibly dangerous and brutal. So if you're unarmed and you're fighting someone with a knife, it doesn't matter what you roll, you take damage. Because if you get into a melee with someone with a knife, they're going to cut you to one degree or another. And... I think one of the games, there wasn't a single fight in it until the very last moment, and it lasted two or three rolls, and then somebody rolled Stu, who was a window cleaner. He rolled a specific roll that was, I think, if you matched tens and units on a roll, it would have disastrous consequences. So he punched this guy, matched tens and units on the roll, and killed him outright. <laughs> that was... <laughs> That was it. So, But what was brilliant about that was there were then ramifications for that in, in future games because he was out on bail, was it self-defence, and all this. Yeah, it was, it was really good fun. But yeah, Unknown Armies, if you like a, a d system yeah. with a little bit of... I know these days they call it storytelling games and narrative games, don't they? They never talked about that at the time when Unknown Armies came out. But if you can pick up a second edition copy of Unknown Armies on eBay, well worth it. The system is very simple. The background is fantastic. Really, really intricate and detailed. The closest thing I could, you could probably compare it to in terms of that really well-thought-out kind of background that's just really fantastic to read and just absorb yourself in anywhere. Something like Delta Green or something like that. Yeah, thoroughly, thoroughly recommend getting a hold of an old copy of Unknown Armies. I got the third edition when it was released. 
whether split it into three hardback volumes, and it came in a slipcase that unfolds as magnetic clasps, clasps, and it unfolds into a GM screen. Really, really kind of fantastic package, but it it doesn't feel as interesting or vital as the second edition. So yeah, definitely recommend getting a copy of that if you can get older one. Just anyway. made a note. Made a note. I'm going to be looking into that. I like the sound of that. Yeah, yeah it seems good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So slight digression there. But um, if you're both interested, I've, I've got the write-up of... we. What we did was we did a collaborative approach to building the town. So my mate Sarah is quite a talented graphic designer. So we all sat down around the table and we came up with ideas for you know what was around. So it wasn't me who came up with a pub called the June Whitfield. It was somebody else, and you know, and including the background law that June Whitfield opened the pub when the when the estate was opened in the nineteen sixties. There was a, a a pub called the Black Pudding, a bakery called Big Biz Gripping Flans, yeah, <laughs> all all sorts of stuff like that. So yeah, I've I've still got the write up of the town, and Sarah has still got the map. She actually drew a map of Ramsey, wow. and she's she's still got it on. I think on on A two paper. A2, like Bristol paper or something. She's still got it, yeah. I'll send you the uh, the old Ramsey document, which I think got something like... I can't remember. can't remember what it got to. But yeah, very much in- influenced by unknown armies and um, just our own memories of growing up in in crap British towns in the north of England in the 1980s. See, I love that. that. That sort of collaborative approach you described there. That's excellent. Are we... Um, I, I ran Deadlands for a long time, um, mm. I, and you, you mentioned Suede World, uh, uh, Suede Bringer earlier, and you know Savage World. You know L- Deadlands, um, the original Deadlands before it became sort of slightly simplified by the Savage World sort of uh, uh, system. I ran that for a long time. It, you know, for me, it was it was um, Vampire the Masquerade, mm. Project Twilight, which was a, an offshoot of that, um, and then I ran went into Deadlands. Um, all the while running Stormbreaker. Anyway, um, it, it, the, the the players had a. Um, they basically had. They, they managed to get all this um, this little town. You know, as is the want in these places, it sort of transports around different places. Um, and they just. I, I gave them. You know, carte blanche as to how they wanted it to look like. Well, you know, the sort of buildings in there, and the name of the place. And and they chose Lost Vagueness, which I know has been <laughs> stolen from elsewhere. But nonetheless, it was just like that is perfect for you guys. Um, but but again, that sort of collaborative approach to because you get you know if it's boring as it is, it's like, you know if if you're leading a team, if you get them to collaborate into it, they buy into it, and it's no different in role playing. If if you get them to create co-create it with you, good lord, you've got them. You, you know they're 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 on the end of the hook. Like so that that collaborative approach, I love it. Love it. It was it was really Brilliant. fantastic because Brilliant. everybody instantly was bought into it. Yeah, yeah exactly. You didn't have to try and sell anything to anybody. No, nope. yeah. no, it stays. Sounds very League of Gentlemen as well, no? A bit raced and vasey. Oh, yeah, there's definitely an element of that. There's definitely an element of that. It was a lot of fun, and the, the sad thing is, because the players, some of them live in Hull, Loz lives in Manchester, I live in Bradford, so we used to get together. Loz would come here, would drive over to Hull, would play the game, would stay over. So everything became an operation. You know, you couldn't just all meet up for three hours and play or four hours and play. It was it was all a major operation, and that, that was one of the problems. The other problem was we could only play about once every three months. So in between games, inevitably, people forget things, and it's really, really hard to keep things present in people's minds. I think as the GM, you remember more than the players sometimes because players' attention wanders, you know, for whatever reason. The other problem was... Because we're all a group of friends getting together, 
it wasn't a case of do we have a drink and socialize or do we game we would game and drink yep. so the games generally stopped when everybody was too pissed to continue <laughs> yeah didn't they yeah so and it's a real shame but when when we first kicked it off i had this idea that they're all it's the early 80s they're all dollies or window cleaners or whatever living in in a shared flat or hanging around together so I created an NPC called Clive Clutterbuck, whose dad ran a a, a, a market stall called Clutterbooks. He ran the second-hand market stall that sold second-hand books. And he was their dungeon master. So we with the very first game we kicked off with them playing their in-game game. Very community. <laughs> yeah. So and, and we played it for about 45 minutes, and it was typically daft fantasy stuff with him in a pub, having a brawl, all that type of stuff in a tavern. But Sorry, and just to be clear, you were gaming within the game. So gaming you, within the game. Within yeah. the game, yeah, just, yeah. just so, to be clear. Sorry. So the players were playing their characters, playing characters. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, um, and then about 45 minutes in, I said the phone rings, and that's where the game kicks in properly. So they have to put down what they're doing, put down the game, respond to whatever's going on. So that kind of set a tone for the game in that it all did become a little bit meta. And we were all completely shit-faced several sessions later, and as a GM, I had not really done my homework properly, and they were in this house trying to figure something out, and one of them says, oh, our players should play Village of Fear while we while we wait until for someone to turn up or whatever. can't remember the exact details. So Sarah, one of the players, went and got her copy of Village of Fear and started setting up Village of Fear on the gaming table. We never ended up playing it. She was gutted because she spent about 45 minutes setting it up and then we never actually played it. But the, the last game we ever played was they had to get on a bus and go from Ramsey to a place called Lower Dryfield. And we had this complete... Not a history of Lower Dryfield, but all of their feelings about Lower Dryfield. Like there were rumours that in Lower Dryfield, people had corduroy teeth and walked backwards wagging their heads. Whatever, just stupid things. And it was all half-joking. It was like, right, so we're setting up this idea for Ramsey, but what's the local rival town? It's Lower Dryfield. And there were reasons why nobody goes to Lower Dryfield. So it was almost like a Lovecraftian town that you don't go to Lower Dryfield. And it was only half a dozen references. But because we've been playing it for a while, they realised that they had to get on a bus and go to Lower Dryfield. There was a real sense of palpable dread <laughs> amongst the players about having to go to Lower Dryfield. Love it. So, so they get to Lower Dryfield. They have to go to an old antique shop which closed in the 60s called Elder Things. Right? So they go to Elder Things. They find some bits and bobs. They find a notebook. They're on the bus back to, um, to Ramsey. It's like, right, what's in the notebook then? One of the players says. So I go, okay. And I hand out five character sheets for five new characters because the notebook is an account of something that happened in World War II and they are all going to play the contents of the notebook. Wow. And that would be a complete session. Far out. <laughs> so, so Sarah was pissed. She just went, I don't get it. What's going on? And I realised at that point, it's probably about half past 12 at night. We've all had too much to drink. I said, don't worry, we'll get to it next time. And we never, ever got to it. Oh, so wow. that's just hanging, that. And it's been hanging for like 10 years. And from time to time, we do say, should we ever go back and play the contents of that notebook? 
See, very similar, and and I fell foul of this because one of my players just outright said no. So I wanted to try something different. We we had a Project Twilight offshoot of Vampire the Masquerade, FBI agents um, in that world. And one of the characters, um, yeah, he got a bit wacky. His soul got dragged to hell. He, He hadn't died. His soul was dragged, his body, he was dragged to hell. So uh, I had this session idea. I thought, right, I'm going to do something different. So I, I wrote this out, the seven circles of hell. And I had, you know, um, things that would happen, you know, depending on their choices that they made, the, the players. But to put the twist on it, I had that one character who was there escaping with a bunch of nobodies mm. who were also in hell. So, of course, only one person was playing his character. The rest of the group were playing, you know, nobody, shit kickers from hell, let's say. Yeah. And and um, one of the ca- one of the players just um, I you know so, so I, I did the big intro and I did right this is what's going to happen here's your character sheets and I, 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 I honestly I really put my heart and soul into this in terms of prep for it and one of the players just went I'm not interested oh I'm not interested Ouch. if I'm not play- if I'm not playing my character I like my character I want to play that I'm just not interested and it was just oh. Mm. And, and and that is literally I came across all my old project Twilight stuff recently uh, and, and and it's still there handwritten on A4 bits of paper which are going yellow now yeah. um, and, and, and it was just like gone yeah. and I think it was because you know with no disrespect to the person I just I wanted to do that you know like yourself try that something a little bit different you know what yeah. I mean yeah but the but lesson I learned is that's not always going to work. So if you are going to try something different, don't put too much effort into it. Yeah. I, I think I, maybe I was disappearing up my own ass a little bit with some of this stuff. <laughs> That's um, pretty cool, Andy. I, I, I like that idea. Yeah, and I, I yeah. like your idea as well, Steve. I mean, I, I think it's more about the group and, and, and the group dynamics. I mean, so our Call of Cthulhu has just finished, yeah, and we've, uh, over a year, every Saturday night. I mean, I'm in Swiss hospitals quite a lot. Um, last year and I'm playing from my hospital room you know on a tablet that's how serious we took off you know and so now it's my turn to to give the guys a break and to run a game and you know I'm running Swede Lankmar and um, I think people are struggling to to rationalise it because they're thinking Charles Dickens level poverty beggars street people Lankmar but I'm thinking weird source and sorcery Wagner Leibar, Moorcock, mm. you know, I don't really want to be in a nitty gritty city thing. So I ran Korgoth of Barbaria, my, my one shot based on the cartoon. And if you've not seen that cartoon, look it up on YouTube. It's tremendous. But the players are still asking, well, what's the general tone of the game going to be? Is it going to be do contracts for the Thieves Guild, work your way up in the guild? Or is it going to be weird source and sorcery? And, and to me, it's a bit of both. I mean, I don't have a meta plan at the moment. I'm still getting a feel for it, winging it. It's day-to-day almost, you know, mm-hmm. but they're used to a campaign that's ran for over a year that's fairly structured and this is the plan, and, and that's just not the way I'm thinking, you know. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm looking for, you know, I mean, ultimately it's weird tales. What am I reading at the moment? What could I turn into, you know, something fun to run, you know? I think it's all about trying things, isn't yeah. it? You've got to try things. Yeah. And I don't know if you've both listened to the episode on Fortress of Hell Part 3 that I did with Lars, put out a few days ago. Yes, and we, yeah, we the talked, most recent, yes. Yeah, we talked Brilliant. at the end of that about how you do a Dreamworlds element of a campaign. Yep. Now, to me, these ideas of like going, what are you 
whatever you want to call it, meta, or doing things slightly differently. That's how you should do a Dreamlands campaign. So what you talked about, Steve, with the seven layers of hell. If the players go into the Dreamlands with the help of a Dream Thief or whatever, throw out your system. Throw out all the rules and do something completely different and take the players out of their comfort zone. It's the only way it could possibly work. And since having that conversation with Oz and since reading Fortress of the Pearl again, I'm really, really fascinated about the idea of how you make that work. And as we mentioned, and of course you'll know this because you've read the same supplement, the Dream Realm supplement for Mongoose Elric really missed the mark for me because, and, and actually the Elric of Melanibonair rules for Mongoose RuneQuest 2, you have a Dream Thief, you have a Dream Thief skill of X percent, you go into the Dreamlands, you you keep all your same skills, gun tables, we won't, we won't go down that route. It just doesn't work. It's got to be wacky, different, outside of the comfort zone. And I'd do the same if I was playing Call of Cthulhu and you ended up in the Dreamlands. You've got to change the entire feel of the game yeah. and hope that one of the players doesn't say, no, I don't want to play a cat from Ulthar. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas I'd be like, no, no, you're all playing cats from Ulthar now. <laughs> like for, the, for the next two sessions. Here are, your, here are your cat character sheets. <laughs> you're not leaving the house. I'm locked the door. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> no, meow for me. Meow for me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I was thinking about this recently. Is I mean, I had some ideas after that podcast because you touched on some good points, and, and I think Laws talked about Chat GPT and the problems there with Moorcock mm. and AI. And I've been doing a lot with Chat GPT to generate not just ideas, plot points, NPC stat blocks, etc. You're almost into a world of random tables from a Dreamlands concept. Yeah. How do you get the fleshy bridge? You know, how do you get the flame lands? How do you get the the lake that's was it the Sighing Lake that Corum was it, yes. it was Elric, wasn't it? Rode yeah, across yeah, yeah. with the mar the wingless Marhoon. You know, those are the kind of things you'd probably want in a dreamlands. You know, you're really looking at plot point type encounters, aren't you? You know, and you, and each Absolutely. one would probably take a night. Yeah, and g- you, g- give give me a set of random tables that comes up with uh, I don't know. You roll a you roll a D10, oh, lactating. You roll a D10 again. Lactating cupboard. You, know, <laughs> you roll a D10 again. Lactating cupboard full of small doll's heads. Brilliant. Give me that. You, yeah. you, you, you reach for the door handle and it's lactating on your hand when you're trying to open the wardrobe. Fuck it. Why not? You know? All you've got to do, watch a bit of Reeves and Mortimer, a bit of David Lynch, <laughs> and, 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 you know, it just, just drag what you need in from that, because what you just yeah. described there is a Reeves and Mortimer sketch of ever, you know. It, that's, that's Dreamlands to me. It's just that, that, that utterly random... But nonetheless, you've got to, in my in my view, you've got to put a bit of symbolism in there. Dreams are all about, you know, sort of symbols from the subconscious. Absolutely. Point, so yeah. you can't just go surreal for the sake of it. You you can, you have to, but that has to be balanced with a little bit of that symbolism in, and 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 and, and a little bit of forethought to, to to make sure it's not overtly obvious. So that the you know your hope is that the players eventually will go, oh, I don't like this. Why is this? You know, what this is saying something to me and I don't really know why and yeah. then to eventually have that sort of light bulb moment and go oh you know point at the point at the ref and tell him you're gonna you know murder him in an alleyway with his luck taken in cupboards <laughs> um but but I'm yeah fucking that's, using that's... this in a game now <laughs> you're gonna have to well at some point I'm gonna run uh, black hack ultimate chaos edition 
So uh, Goran is going to play. So I'm going to surprise him. It won't be that much of a fucking surprise if he listens to this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well done. Well done. Yeah. It's really nice, though, isn't it? I mean, it's a, it's, it's a lovely book. I mean, I, that's I, fabulous. I, I bought that because there's another group. I mean, in Switzerland, there's two big gaming groups. There's one, and they're all very organised, very Swiss. They've got places and you know rooms booked and different. You know, there's a, a Cuban bar in town. It's like a cigar mm. place. We get to game in their cellar and amongst all these boxes of cigars. Um, the Swiss guys are great, but they're very focused on D&D. &D. Mm. And so now they've kicked off a, an indie group, if you like, that plays more indie games. Um, and they meet regularly, like one or, once or twice a week in different pubs around the town and play face-to-face. -face. And that's why I bought this, because I'm thinking I could run that game, the Black Black Sword hack, mm. easily in a pub setting, face to face with people, not online. You know, it's a completely different because I've got so used to. If it doesn't work on Foundry, then I can't run it. Mm. You know, and it's constrained me, if you like, for the best part of two or three years. You know, mm. so that's why I bought it. It's just the right size, just the right level of depth to run something in a face to face pub yeah. context. You know, so there, there are a couple of reasons I really, really like it. One is I can read it in bed without breaking my wrist. And, and yeah. over time, I used to really love massive tomes, but I do most of my reading in bed now, so I want some I can I just hold up. You can read it from cover to cover in an hour, yet still feel completely inspired by it. It's a toolkit as much as it's a system, and all of the advice, just some of the, just the random tables, it inspires you to be creative and not just roll on the tables but actually that just it's just a seed to wet yeah. your whistle and get your get your thinking your gray cells going i like the magazine that came with it you know yeah. uh, i hope they continue with that i do yeah yeah it's really good. and not only that but because the art is fantastic as well which adds to the immersiveness of it all it's really regret and the system once you've played it once you'll never read the read the rules again yeah it's so simple one of the on. things potentially I think might be a problem with it, I really like the Doom Dice thing, but in order to get the maximum benefit from that, you've got to have a lot of fighting going on. Otherwise, that Doom Dice mechanic will never really come into its own. That's the only thing that I want to test through play. Yeah. Mm. But the Young Kingdoms is, you know, you can't avoid combat. I mean, it, it's, it, again, my opinion, apologies, mm. it's, it's different. And I think if 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 you're trying to be true <laughs> to the books... That's that's going to be a you know a, a natural part of it. You can't can't avoid it. So mm. maybe that's the you know you you don't don't lose that that benefit then. Yeah, you just got to get used to regular character turnover. Yeah, you? yeah. Um, I'm, I'm not I've not read it, so I, I, the system. I mean, so I don't know. It's very simple. Your characters don't get end up with seventy hit points. Um, no matter how many levels you go up, you can still be killed in three or four hits. Great, mm. love it. And you're never going to keep characters for long anyway in that no. kind of game. I mean, it's not a power game where you're looking to level up to 20 and yeah. hold a tower, you know? Yeah. No. That, that is survive. one of the reasons, though, why I think perhaps e even if you have loads of fights, there's a reg there's a fast turnover of characters. I'm not sure the Doom Dice mechanic will ever really play out properly. Oh, really? Okay. That's yeah. what's got to be tested through play, yeah. I think. Yeah, so it'll be interesting to test that out. Yeah, but that's that's something I'm going to look at anyway. So I'm going to roll one last dice for my third beer of the afternoon. It's a one. You're another, streaking on. I'm, I'm still on my second. It's another Welsh beer. This is uh, Purple Moose Brewery, and it's High Hops Tropical IPA. 
at 5.5%. And uh, we got this from Porth Maddock when we were up there, when we were at Barmouth not so long ago. So I'm glad that I didn't get the Navigator because that's 7% and perhaps maybe a, a little bit tricky for this time on a Sunday afternoon, particularly <laughs> when I got a cup filled tea after we're finished. But I'll just pour this out. So, I'm going to hit the local Irish bar in Mirdan, I reckon. That's a good plan. So just to, just to wrap things up, we've, <laughs> we've talked about um, Stormbringer, we've talked about the Mongoose role-playing games. What other games are out there that kind of follow the same kind of lineage, the ones that claim uh, Mococcian inspiration? We've just talked about Black Sword Hack, but what are the other games you've come across that you think could nicely accommodate a Mococcian feel in a game? Well, there was a, a bit of to and fro on... I think one of your posts this week, um, I, can't remember, I can't remember who it was, Paul maybe talked about Luther Arkwright as, as mm. a game to run. I have that, and he's right. I mean, it's it's very Murkocky and just the story of Luther Arkwright. I hadn't actually thought about taking it out of the context of Luther Arkwright and running it as uh, maybe a Jerry Cornelius game or a, yeah. you know, but I'm reluctant to go back into, I mean, Mithras is great, but it's rules heavy, it's slow I mean I, Steve I think from what you're saying and the sounds of your storm ring and I read your write-ups I, I enjoy seeing what you're up to well, thank you you're running BRP because it's fast yep you know and, and Mithras isn't fast I mean it, it, it's a lovely simulationist combat with combat styles and you know um, advanced manoeuvres and all these kind of things but it's not fast so that would be my worry with Luther Arc right um mm. More, more of the same. I, you know, I, I think we're looking at Black Sword Hack. I think Moonblade, I really want it to get moving, but I'm not confident. I mean, there is a Foundry install for Moonblade, and it's pretty mm-hmm. good, but it's all in French. And I speak a little French, but not enough, I think, to, to run with the whole Foundry instance where everything's in French. Yeah. You know? Um, are so they... have you looked into the Choose Your Dice system? I've, I've got the Quick Start PDF that came with a Kickstarter. Only briefly. I've, I've only briefly looked at it, so I've not really got my head around how the system works. Yeah, me neither. I think the people are, that are doing it are great. I was on their Discord for a while, and I would chat to them with a Google Translate window open and you know, ask them different questions. I think they're real enthusiasts for a, a more cocky setup. Mm. Um, but as long as it stays in French, we're, we're going to struggle, I think. You know? Yeah. What about you, Steve? Are there any other systems out there, the ones that, you know, in the introductions they say that they're inspired by Moorcock or they have Moorcock on the reading list? Are there any out there that you would recommend? Or are you a pure Stormbringer man? I don't know. I'm, I'm kind I think I'm the latter. Um, for, for me, I mean, I, you know, I looked at Tales from the Loop. Um, I quite like the sort of setting. The system was all right. I've, I've run Aliens a few times, a couple of one-offs for that because I think it's best suited. And and that's good because it's an experience in itself. But for me, Stormbringer, I think I've got to such a point now that I can tell my story with this system so easily. And mm. and and I know that's not the same as again egotistical. I think what I mean is, it, I'm taking barriers out of my way to write these stories and give my players a good time. Mm. Change for the sake of it, in my mind, just to try something different. 
maybe it's just old man shouting at the sky sort of mentality. <laughs> but um, I, I, I just think it, you know, it's not for me. I, I, I can run the Stormbringer stories I want. I can run the multiverse stories I want. You know, bring a bring a bit of Hawkwing, bring a bit of Corum. The Corum system, by the way, I really, really want that so badly. But the prices out there are so bad. So if anyone's listening to this podcast and they have one for a reasonable price, for somebody who'll make use of it, you know, uh, the plea is there. Um, but but no, I think I'd stick with what I've got. I, I, I genuinely wouldn't wouldn't change it. If I'm going to run a different system, it'll be a different setting. Um, mm. So for Stormbringer, you know, like I say, I can do my prep for the next, you know, each episode I prep, depending on the exam, you know, the, the outcomes and cho- choices that players have made from the last session. I can do that in three or four hours and I've got the next episode ready to go. Mm. If I have a new system, I've got to start thinking about, okay, well, how am I going to make that mechanic work? How am I going to? No, not for me. Gorham is the best one. I would completely agree there. I mean, what to do is watch eBay around Christmas, times when people aren't spending money mm. on frivolous things, you know. So maybe summer holidays, maybe Christmas. Um, that's when you get these kind of bargains. I think I got my Corum. I mean, it sounds trite, about 50 bucks, but it's as good as new. It's pretty much brand new, uncreased, um, yeah. you know. The 50 bucks is good. 50 yeah. bucks is good. Yeah, I mean, yeah. and, you know, 100 or, 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 or plus, you know, and it's like I, I'm. Unfortunately, I'm. I, I'm. I, I can afford it, but I'm that tight. <laughs> I would not pay that for a book. Yeah, it's just a case of keeping your eyes peeled. They do very occasionally. I keep an eye on it just because whenever I've got something rare, I tend to keep an eye on what they're going for because yeah. the day will come when I'm skinned and I've got to get rid of them all again, just <laughs> yeah. like I did in the nineties, exactly, or the early two thousands or whatever when I sold all my merp gear for a song. Um, so it's just a case of keeping an eye out, and eventually one yeah. will come up uh, at a decent price. I think in terms of those games that claim that Mococcian thread, we've talked about Black Sword Hack. There's one called Through Sunken Lands that I would recommend. I think that does a really, really nice job of mechanically, just through simple little things, helping you recreate quite Mococcian characters. And it doesn't, you know, it's not about weird point systems for law and chaos influence and all that type of stuff. But I remember reading through it when I got a slip, a special slipcase edition for my birthday from my mum and dad from Black Earth Games. It's really, really nice. And there's just silly little things in it that you read and you go, oh, I like that, because this would help me recreate Deverk, for example. And one of them, it's a character feat or trait, which means that you can use your charisma in the same way that you could use strength or for fighting or dexterity if you're a finesse fighter you can use your charisma for that because you tell people off or intimidate them or or engage in banter with them and it enables you to use your charisma in duels and things like that and the way it was described i really liked because it instantly made me think of deverk you know just little things like that where they've taken a little bit of flavor from a book that they like or a text that they like and and they've made a game mechanic around just a really super simple game mechanic around it and there's lots and lots of stuff like that in through sunken lands so that would probably be my other recommendation of more modern games that help to simulate that kind of thing but ultimately i'm a lazy fucker when it comes to these things and i'm a really lazy gm and i almost always just end up using barbarians of lemuria and hacking it for whatever scenario yeah, you mentioned that before I I, I, yeah. I I did look at trying to get that as well but that's another one that's tricky to find yeah, it's I quite think, good. But don't it, you think it's I mean, super easy? But to me, it feels a bit like a, a cut down Savage Worlds. If I was going to run one or the other, then I would go Savage Worlds to have more options. 
yeah, it's super, super simple because, I mean, I ran a sci-fi game with it yep. late last year, and I thought, right, okay, so I'm going to run this sci-fi game with a specific theme, a specific flavor, and the entire concept of it is you have four core attributes and you have four careers. And I did this for a game about German poets in the 18th century that I ran years ago, uh, which all started off with, it was poetry night at the Moon and Fennig, and um, one of the poets blows his own brains out, and they have to investigate the source of the madness that made him kill himself. And so what I had for the four core attributes was loving, fighting, talking, and something else. That was it. And you split four points between them. You can have zero points in one if you want. You can have up to three points in any of them. And you just split them. And then you have four careers. So, you know, whatever you want. Farmer, entertainer, whatever. And do the same thing. And then it's 2d6 versus a target number of nine. But if you can argue that one of your core attributes and or one of your careers helps you in that in that role, that's it. So at the very core of it, it's like the old 2d6 versus target number thing. It's super, super simple, super straightforward. And for a, for a bunch of casual gamers who are not really into complex character sheets and you know trying to explain why, I don't know, your strength is 17, but the important thing is a plus what two bonus. You know, trying to interpret stuff for people. It's just really fucking easy. And yeah. you can automatically program in the flavor of your game. So for the sci-fi game, the idea was that there were specialist janitorial detail going to a space station to clean up a mess. Oh. Right? Simple. And then I had some index cards that just had, I think one of the things was um, their secret. The other one was a specific motivation that they had. That was it. So their entire characters were contained on an index card. Because just because I had shitloads of old index cards of various colours. So I thought, right, let's, let's... And that was it. That's all they needed. 2d6, you don't have to look at rules, you don't have to read a system, super straightforward, yet still drenched in flavour. And that's the beauty of Barbarians of Lemuria. There are lots and lots of ver- hey. versions of 2d6 versus a target number systems where you have more options and more boltons to add more crunch, but that's it, it's basic level. And because I'm lazy, that works for me. But not only that, it's because my players generally, when we tend to game in person, don't read rules. And even if I gave them a crib sheet for something like Mithras, absolute waste of time. Never reading it. Yeah, absolute waste of time. I could give them a crib sheet with all the combat manoeuvres, they wouldn't read it. But you know your players, so you know that's what to expect, so you yeah. make sure that what you're writing doesn't require them to ever have to do that. You'll yeah. do the bits you need to for them in advance or yeah. or at the time. And, yeah. and I think it comes back to something... Yeah, Twitter. The Twitter RPG scene is a, is a, is a crazy, crazy thing, and I, I, I love it. It's good, some... though, isn't it? Oh, I think it's great, to be honest. But there's there's, there's some some real wacky opinions, and I, and I think one of the things I keep coming back to, and I, you know, it's almost like I can cut and paste it now and just put it in as a stock answer. Is there is no right and wrong? What you're hmm. describing there, Andy, you're talking about. You know, a simple system, you know your players are going to enjoy. If they don't have to worry about anything, you can just say, okay, four stats, four skills, you know, whatever. Um, And and that's your lot. You know, you you get to a story, they have a good time, you have a good time. That is literally all it is. You know, if anybody else. Exactly. You know, and and people say, you must do this. If you're not doing it this way, you're wrong. It's like, Mm. no, you do what you and your players enjoy. That is literally the secret. That's it. That's one of the weirdest things about Twitter RPG discourse, isn't it? The amount of energy people invest in you doing it wrong. But but do yeah. they? Because I, I don't see a lot of that. 
I see a lot of people complaining about people doing that, but I don't actually see many people <laughs> trying to say you have to do it. I mean, it's maybe just the, the world, the Twitter world I'm in that, that I don't see it. And it maybe, means you're doing a good job of curating your feed, Dev. Yeah, I just don't means. see it. You know, I mean, and, and, and you know, general toxicity. I mean, I, I keep bashing them, but it's the D and D crowd. You know, I mean, mm. they, they seem to be in this world of. They're always complaining about something, you know, and I generally don't see a lot of the the, the grief that, that mm. seems to happen, you know. You make a good point there, actually. I think there are just people that we interact with on Twitter who are who have one foot in that scene. Yeah, you've just said that, and I'm trying to think where I've seen firsthand these flame wars. And you're right; I've only seen people posting responses to the flame wars. Yeah. And one of the weird things is people posting, and this is you know very much a Twitter thing, isn't it? People post, "This is what I'm having for my breakfast." Fried bread is an essential part of any full English breakfast. People are doing the same thing with yeah. gaming, and it's the same across yeah. the board. You know, it's one of those things. But yeah, ignore it, respond to it, do whatever you want. Yeah, but, I mean, but the key uh, is enjoy it. You know, in, you do what you and your absolutely. players enjoy. That, that is literally it. That's yeah. the only point I would make. Absolutely. I mean, that's I mean, an interesting point about your index card game, and in general, that that kind of lighter style of gaming, light lighter rules type of gaming. I would never have dreamed of going into a pub in Scotland in the 80s or even 90s, or I don't even know about now, to be honest, mm. and playing a role-playing game at a table mm. with normal people round mm. about us. Whereas now, I mean, I don't know about the UK, but here it's fairly common. It's not, not that unusual, you know. Um, they don't have a sports drinking culture the way we do, the Swiss, you know. I mean, they, they just don't, you know. I mean, my interview when I came over here and the guy said, what sports do you do? Because they all do sports. I said, I drink, you know, and they all laughed. You know, one of these pilots, they all laughed, thought I was joking. I was serious, you know. <laughs> that is my only hobby, you know. So, But, you know, to me, that's what these lightweight games are about, you know. And yeah. I think the Swiss indie, indie gamers group, they meet once or twice a week. They sit and meet in different pubs. They sit with these lightweight lighter weight games and they have some really good role playing sessions you know, and I think that's really positive you know yeah well I've, I've only ever played in that kind of setting once yeah. and it was Pathfinder 2nd edition <laughs> <laughs> which is the only time I've, I've, I play, I think I played it twice I drove over to Hull um, a good mate of mine invited me to go over and his, his mate was running Pathfinder 2nd edition playtest and I'd never played it and he was just like oh do you fancy coming over and giving it a go and I was like yeah cool I'll come over and give it a go Really enjoyed it. Not my kind of game. Not my style of game. Maps, tactical figures, combats that last forever. But they were good guys, nice guys. I could have a beer while I did it. But it was very odd doing it in this this cafe, surrounded by people. We we were right in the window, and people were walking past and looking at this bunch of middle aged blokes sitting around a table with figures and double taking, and stopping and staring through the window at us to look at what we were doing. It's very odd, but you know what? We had a good time. That's the important thing. I mean, he, I mean, Little, he, Little Woods Cafe we ran, sorry, I ran Stormbringer in a Little Woods Cafe in Newport, which is got a, you know, a certain cross-section of society, shall we say. And, they, and looking back on it now, with absolute, you know, I, I can feel, my hands are sweating thinking about it, genuinely. <laughs> but we were young and it was, they were, they were you know, uh, uh, mothers and fathers drinking their tea and sort of looking over, yeah. inquiring. There was some sort of younger generation looking over as if they were going to, you know, they're doing something. They, you know, why are they reading? Not what are they reading? The old Bill Hicks kind of thing. Yeah. Um, it, it, that was the sort of mentality, but we didn't care then. Yeah. Looking back now, I'd be like, ah. Absolutely not. Little Woods Cafe, you know, people yeah. ordering their sort of coffee and beans. No. Yeah. But, but no. I mean, again, I, I don't know so much about the UK. 
if it's if it's a common trend. But here there are, I mean, I can think of a couple of pubs and cafes. Pubs the wrong word because don't really do pubs here. You know, there are places that do food and alcohol. There are games places. They've got little board games on the shelves. You know, you 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 go in, you enjoy their hospitality, you pay for whatever, and you you would sit and play board games or, in our case, role playing games. I mean, there's two or three places I can think of like mm-hmm. that, and I can't really imagine that in Scotland. Certainly, in Fife, where I'm from originally. Mm-hmm. Well, it's maybe changed. Maybe I'm being unfair, you know. Yeah. What you need to do is get back and do it and mainstream gaming in Fife. Because <laughs> that's what we're doing. But doing it in these settings, we're mainstreaming gaming. Yep. Yeah. Lactating cupboards are yeah. Lact- <laughs> lact- absolutely. Absolutely. That'll See people's faces when you're doing it in the sp- Witherspoons in Fife when you're talking about lactating cupboards. Yeah. Well, you know what, fellas, on, on that. Thanks for dropping by Derry and Tom's to talk about your experience of gaming. We no doubt will end up having many more discussions about this and other things, but thanks for dropping by. A pleasure. You know, I enjoy the podcast, Andy. Steve, I love your updates. Uh, great to follow what you're up to. I think you've really thank you. got the spirit of it, you know. Great to it, see. It, at least I know that one person reads it, so thank you for that. <laughs> I appreciate no, I do, I it. Well, what I'll do, that. Steve, is I'll, put, I'll post the links in the show notes so people can check it out. Brilliant, thank you. I think there's I mean, quite a few, Steve. There's a few people I talk to here that, that follow it regularly, you know. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, brilliant. Because I, I do put a bit of effort into making it a narrative, yeah. um, you know. My players, they, they, they're really grateful. But, uh, yeah, I didn't really think there was much of a following outside of that. But that's nice to hear. Thank you. All right. Cheers, chaps. Massive thanks to Dave and Steve for dropping by Derry and Tom's. You can find Dave and Steve's blogs at tentacledwhisperer.wordpress.com and cruisingforamusing36190591.wordpress.com Are you sure you're not a bot, Steve? Anyway, I'll link to these shows in the show notes, of course. Do check them out for some cracking content and more cocky and gaming goodness. And naturally... Thanks as always to our patrons. First, those without tear, Anthony Paconti, Tim Cardos, Dave Dempster, and Sebastian Weetabix. And our case engineers, Andrew Cicluna, Andrew Van Ness, Anthony Porter, Benjamin Fletcher, Brandon Mays, Craig Ledley, Dave Griffiths, Dave Voxman, Gabriel Laycock, Harvey Faulkner Aston, Jim Kirkland, Jim Knight, John W. Lays, Jules Lawrence, Mal Pertwee, Mary Catherine, Matt Saltz, Menion, Nelbert, Paul McRandall, Scott Butler, Simon Perrins, and Tony Milazzo. And of course, to our crafty Jugaderos, Alexander Harris, Ian Stead, Loz, Taylor, Matthew Broom, Toby White, Mark Hebden, and Graham Holden. And finally, eternal thanks to our patron demons, Andy Darby, Clarky the Cruel, David Lee, Fred Keish, Gareth Wilson, Greg Faulkner, Gwen Barlow, Imria, Jenny Stim, Jay Reza, Joe Monty, Jason Vogel, Lee Gary, thanks Lee for the increased vote of confidence, Liam J, Maldry Delbato, Mortmain, Neil Burton, Paul Hillary, Randall Gatlin, Steve Round, Tom Murphy, the OG patron Norman Beresford, and last, but of course, never least, 
Robert McMillan. And finally, 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 thanks for all the positivity and best wishes over what has been a very interesting six weeks over here. It's very much appreciated. I'd love to read your words. Right, enough yakking. Don't forget you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at Breakfast Ruins. You can email us at breakfastruins at outlook.com. The webpage is breakfastintheruins.com. BITR Breakfast in the Ruins Radio is live on Radio Garden, liveradio.uk, or via the web player at breakfastintheruinsradio.blogspot.com. We have our Patreon page too, and there are a few extra odds and sods on there. But for now, take care, stay safe, and we will meet again soon on the Moonbeam Roads.